Welcome to the Alts Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on the rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Hi, I'm Horatio Ruiz, host of the Alts Podcast. You're going to want to listen to today's guest, Les Borsai. If you're into NFTs, even if you're not, Les has a story for anyone interested in business, music, community, art, and just being in the moment. Les is the co-founder and chief strategist at Wave Financial. About a year ago, he spearheaded the launch of an NFT fund for accredited investors as part of a series of Wave venture funds. We talk about his early career in the music industry, the development of the Wave NFT fund, and his thoughts on the NFT space. And there's so much more. Les truly is one of the thought leaders in the space. Let's go. We're very lucky today to be joined by Les Borsai. He is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Wave Financial. They are a digital assets management company. They currently have more than $600 million of worth of assets under management. And Les just recently started an NFT fund, uh, which is on the, on the cutting edge of all these NFT funds that have come out recently. Les, thank you for joining us today. Oh, I appreciate it. It's uh, actually closer to the a billion and a half AUM right now, but I think maybe with depreciation of the assets lately, it's uh, a little bit lower, but uh, 600 million was, was a minute ago. I got that from maybe a couple months ago, so that's amazing. Les, we do some research here with NFTs and NFT funds, and there's been uh, a bunch of them come out recently, but yours caught our attention early on. We just kind of wanted to know more about the, the fund, your background, kind of how you got into um, the NFT space. But I know that you started down in South, Southern California, you started as a, as, a, as a music promoter in the rave scene. Is that correct? Yeah, it was um, right around 1988. I think I had just turned 20 years old and I, I'd left home pretty early. I left home when I was 16, eventually wanted to figure out a way that I could make a living and somehow throwing parties kind of fit my DNA at the time. So we would find these warehouses and create these events. And what that kind of merged into was the first incarnation of the rave scene and kind of bringing over talent from the UK. Some of those first bands were like Massive Attack and the Stereo MCs and The Farm and Primal Scream and the first incarnation of all that kind of EDM music. And I guess where that went was just a deeper career in the music business, being an actual concert promoter and, you know, moving on into other aspects of music. I can imagine as a 20 year old uh, promoter, you know, in the music scene that that was, that was a pretty, you know, exciting time to say the least, maybe, you know, exciting kind of uh, meeting a lot of other young people, uh, the energy behind it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, th- I think there's a lot of comparables to what, you know, crypto is today with the metaverse and NFTs and DeFi and, you know, back then it was just young people, you know, creating community through physical kind of activities, I guess, you know, like the dancing and the music was kind of the underlying factor and the warehouse was the experience. And that ultimately turned into kind of other jobs in in the music business, you know, and that was going from concert promoter, working at a record company. And I went to the 
Silicon Valley and ended up working on one of the first online entertainment destinations. And it was funded by SoftBank and Asia Pacific. And then I came back and I was just a manager for many years. But kind of the crossover between all of that was community was important. And, you know, if you took a look at a lot of the the artists you were working with, there were a lot of comparable artists and those experiences, you know, just led you to building your own communities. And it's exactly the same as it is today, except our version is Telegram and Discord and, you know, different social media that has adopted. Quick aside, I mean, because you mentioned that, I mean, is there something, I didn't mean to go here, but is there something that's lost or do you think gained? Because you talked about the dancing, right? And the the music and you experienced that physically, right? That was a physical experience. And now it's like everything is kind of digitally experienced. We're moving away from that physical, that that uh, being in person kind of community. And in some instances, what I think made NFT NYC, right? Something like NFT NYC so amazing was these people that had communicated for, you know, over a year or for, for months, let's say for months uh, digitally, they met up for the first time. And it was almost like, you know, there was some sort of fascination with it. Oh, we get to meet in person when I was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, what else were you going to do? What do you think about that divide, I guess? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know if it's a divide or ultimately, as I got older, I was okay not leaving the house too much. So for me, I think it was a benefit for younger people. I think they enjoy leaving the house. Um, but if you really like take a look at the underlying philosophy, you know, it wasn't too long I did an interview and I did it as an avatar in the metaverse. And I think as a guy that was a little bit of an outcast in high school, we always want to be things other than ourselves in some instances or when we're young anyway, as we're trying to fit in. And now having the ability to 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 be a CyberCong VX if I feel like it as a young kid with a bank account because I'm trading NFTs or doing DeFi, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. So is that other element missing? I don't know. I mean, it was just a different experience. You know, I threw those parties to make a living and there was a lot of it you know that is the same energy when you're risking something when you're risking you know throwing an event in a warehouse that may or may not be permitted appropriately or may or may not make money or lose money i think it's really akin to is online poker better than going into a poker room and to be honest with you i've been in poker rooms i think online poker is probably better Okay. You talked about the earlier part of your career. What led you to co-found Wave Financial even before you started the NFT fund? And, and what was your background with that? Well, I mean, I think, again, curiosity is the thing that really matters. In 2013, Bitcoin was trading at about 200 bucks, I think, and I wanted to find the next one. I thought it was expensive. I became an advisor for a company called Ripple in 2013. In 2014, I invested in Ethereum. I did the pre-sale. So that was good. Uh, and then I, I really invested in a lot of the currencies coming because I think if you really kind of look at my history, I was always kind of fascinated with outcasts. You know, I don't know if you're picking up on that. And these guys, you know, that came from the cypherpunk movement and, you know, they were always fascinating to me. That hacker culture was really interesting to me. You know, it's something I could never be. I didn't have enough of uh, aptitude for coding or patience, but I, I genuinely liked the attitude in some ways 
So when I came to cryptocurrency, I kind of immediately understood it. It just had a natural connection. So as I invested kind of through the ICO period, you know, we started Wave Financial because we knew there would be, you know, an institutional capability. And I guess even Peter Pan needs to grow up. So all of those like idyllic, you know, views I had to it. I knew there would be institutional use case. I knew that we had a good head start and, and that's how we co-founded it. You know, and the company does a lot of things now. You know, we have multiple venture funds. We do treasury management for high net worths and protocols. And we create a lot of financial products and, and really have a global vision of how we accomplish those things. And, and obviously, you know, NFTs were near and dear my heart. And um, that's something that's been incredibly successful, kind of out of the box. Yeah, you started uh, Wave Financial in 2018. Is that, is that right, 2018? Yeah, just at the beginning. And, and you dealt primarily with you know DeFi and, and, and cryptocurrencies. And then all of a sudden, about, I would say, a year, year and a half ago, right, uh, NFTs pop up. Was it kind of difficult to start this NFT fund that maybe that you just started that it wouldn't be taken seriously? Or obviously, you started, so you had some conviction there. What was the thought process behind starting it? Well... We were a registered investment advisor with California out of the box, and then one with the SEC when we had enough AUM. And I had bought my first CryptoPunk, which I lost in 2017. Looking at the crypto prices today, I guess it's not that big of a deal. But I had got crypto kitties back then, and I was always a collector. I understood sports cards and watches and all sorts of stuff. And my dad was a collector, but he was more of a hoarder. So I always kind of liked flipping things. It was fun. Um, so I really, you know, got curious again, and I became an advisor for Avogache, and Avogache really showed me what an NFT could be, because I think people get confused that this is about art, and it's not, or this is about collectibles, and it's not. And let me just talk about how the fund started. I, I started collecting again, and I was doing very well at it. My partners kept saying, you got to launch a fund, you got to launch a fund. And I kept saying, no, I don't get it. Why would we as an asset manager do that. And they're like, hey, dummy, it's art. It's an asset. Do it. And I'm like, all right, man. So that's how it kind of came about. And it wasn't hard. Um, it is the single most successful launch we've had in terms of what we've been able to raise and what we've been able to invest in. But if you look at the ethos of it, Avogache really showed me that an NFT could be a financial instrument, it could be a wallet, it could be an avatar, it could be your identity, it could be a whole bunch of things in the metaverse. And, you know, I, I really look back to Wall Street bets and the fact that they gamified going long on some hedge funds just to hurt them. And then I look at Satoshi bets and then I look at the DAOs, and it's really easy to comprehend that we've created a gig economy in the metaverse and all of this is about liquidity and it's not about collectibles necessarily it's about a convergence of ideas that ultimately end up becoming things like gamified banking you know wrapped into an nft that's your profile and that's a crazy way to think and i think really what it is is we've heard so much about the boomers leaving the millennials, the worst economy in history. And I, I really think it's kind of like, this is the millennials and Gen Z saying, fuck you and the economy, you left us, we got this. And 
if you tie that back to my early history, which I remember, I, I didn't really want to go to college. I was a guy that could actually do things. And I think that's really what it comes down to is you have opportunity to do lots of interesting things. It's why my 14-year-old nephew understands this so well and has created a bank account for himself. I'm trying to digest you know, what you just said because it's a new definition. It would be a new definition for a lot of people that are listening, right? That it's not about being a collectible. It's not, it's not about the art. You're basically just talking about an entirely new way of making money. And that's what it boils down to. Right. You know, DAOs are really interesting. They're community driven, um, as everyone knows. It's a way to do a launch out of a DAO and have the DAO recoup, you know, from secondary sales. And people have those attributed royalties on secondary sales. And, you know, DAOs launching tokens that represent value in the DAO and doing that over and over and over again. So, yeah, it's a new economy. Well, let's dive into the specifics of the fund. You've gone out and I, you know, I've tracked some of some of the purchases you've made and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't see any, like, uh, I, w- I would imagine that when you're starting out the fund, you would start off number one, a crypto punk, number two, a board ape, right? And your fund has kind of taken a, a little bit of a different, uh, approach as of right now, there's no apes and there's, there's no punks. How are you going about curating your fund? Look, I bought kind of a grail board ape for an ETH and a half personally. And I bought another ape for a half ETH, under a half ETH. And if you take a look at the Grail and you take a look at the other one and the value after the mutant airdrops and after the kennel dogs, it's very hard to go buy one at market for me, regardless of what they're going to be or what they're going to become. Um, and it's the same with punk, although now's the time to buy a punk because of, you know, kind of the way it's backtracked here. And, you know, I bought my punk my first one in 17 and the second one I bought for 16 ETH. So, you know, if I'm looking at it from an investment perspective, there's no way I'm deploying money out of the fund to go buy a premium ape at this point when I have enough sense to understand that a crypto, you know, bought at $300 better investment or, you know, what I believe the cool cats are to be, you know, the cool cats are beautiful artwork created by Klon. There's milk tokens coming and, you know, they've hung around and, and I believe in, in those, in that project, I believe in the gaming component they're building out, or I love the CyberCon VXs because I think they represent identity of a lot of the youth that builds in the space. Um, the other thing we've done that you don't see is a lot of the illiquid investments that we have. So we've invested in a lot of metaverse stuff, a lot of gaming stuff as well. That's going to act as a gateway. So the thesis is about 70% collectibles and 30% infrastructure plays. And I think there's a lot of DAO stuff I'm really interested in. Uh, Really support Justin Aversano uh, with his twin flames. We bought one of those. We also bought a Blau, and you can read about this on his site, which, you know, I come from music and I don't want to buy music and NFTs. I actually don't even like it most of the time. But in this case, I like the artist and I wanted to do a Reg D offering with that and figure out different ways to license because the models of licensing in the music business when it comes to the publisher side and master side and all of the writers are just completely archaic. 
So I think there's other ways to do that. And that's why we bought it. But we ended up selling it an hour later uh, and passing some of the upside to the artist. And that was important to me too, because I think, you know, when we talk about this economy that's being built, the second part of that is the democratization uh, and the ability to actually have a career in this world. And there's too many barriers and roadblocks in IRL, right? And if you want to sell art through a prestigious gallery, you've got a lot of hoops to go through. If you want to sell art in this world, you have to build a community and they'll support you. And I think that's a fundamental kind of optimistic difference. And the barriers for trans, gay, people of color, it doesn't exist here. It's actually supported. And I think that's another really kind of important factor because I don't think anyone should be blocking anything. I mean, and, and that, you know, when you bookend it with how I started my career to where I'm at now, the middle was a clusterfuck for me. Somehow I believed being connected to artists and all of the ego connected to that and all the bullshit connected to that. Like, that's not how I wanted to live my life anymore. You know, somehow I forgot, you know, you really got focused on money. And with this, you can just like look at the bigger picture. It's really cool. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty deep. And, and I kind of want to take it back. Like, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that you, you know, your fund, you've, you've purchased some photography. Yeah. Uh, you did the, the, the music NFT, the Blau that you referenced earlier. You flipped that like immediately. You, you made like 60 ETH on it. I was going to say, I mean, you, you basically made yourself a crypto punk right there. Well, we also float a lot back to the artist. Yeah. So Blau got a, a piece of that because I thought it was a good deal for him. And and it was it was a rare situation. Someone really, really wanted it, and you know, I saw that the artist could benefit from it, and that was really the 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 point of it. Because I can buy another one and do another collaboration if I want to. And I think with the stuff that we are getting involved in, there's many sides to it. We all want to make money, but if you're not really like authentically supportive of all of this, and when you think about the way I put the fun together. There's a guy named Veg Surfer. Veg Surfer, you know, already had a pretty cool portfolio and came in to do this because he wanted the collaboration. And he makes, you know, a lot of the decisions on what we buy and has those relationships. And I really wanted to set it up like a record company, you know, on the creative side. I didn't want someone who was a banker coming into the office. We have those. We have plenty of bankers. I wanted someone who would just be immersed the way I was. And it's very hard to find those types of people that understand kind of so deeply what's coming next. You know, why is Arbitrum a layer two, not having a native token, using a magic token and, you know, launching from the layer two is what I meant, not native two. Or, you know, what what what's going on with um, some of the other models that are that are happening right now. And and I think staying ahead of it is the thing that keeps us really relevant. Could you talk a little bit about that with Veg Surfer? I mean, you have him immersed in there and he he himself was a pretty, you know, for lack of a better term, a successful collector, right? With deep knowledge of, of the, the space. That's interesting to me. Like you said, bringing him in and working alongside, say, you know, financial analysts. There's a synergy there, right? That, that you can't get otherwise. Yeah. And I think it's because I've seen it so many times. You know, I love to tell this story. In 1992 or three, I worked at a company called MCA Records. And there was a band called Sublime that was managed by Blaine Kaplan and John Phillips. And I remember Bradley coming into the building. I remember two things, really, back then. 
But Bradley coming into the building, and MCA was as corporate as you got, and Bradley wasn't. Bradley was as soulful as you got. And you know this relationship was either going to work or just implode. But I remember at the time, I was pretty young. I think I was like 22. My boss saying, you know what we're going to do with this? And I go, what? He goes, leave it the fuck alone. I'm like, okay. And the point was, it was something already. And if you could let it just be organic and develop, then they could do the stuff like distribution or positioning at retail because we still had retail, not streaming back then. And it really worked because everyone understood their lane. And I think when it comes to understanding the marketplace, why would a guy like Veg want to do this? Well, that's pretty simple to understand. You know, he's collaborative. There's other things that he'll learn that, you know, are not necessarily part of his existing toolbox or skill set. And that was a hard lesson for me. I did a lot of things alone for a long time. I just didn't realize that authentic collaboration can take you places that doing things on your own can't. And that's really pretty remarkable when you can do that. Wow. Yeah. So, and that's, that's something I think that we, we gain with experience, right? Totally can relate to that. You know, you think you can do everything by yourself. You, you, you know, you have this youth about you, this energy, and then, and then you realize there's a lot that I don't know. Well, and you know, what you don't know when you collaborate, you can just build something that's greater than yourself. And I think, you know, when you're young, you don't really give a fuck about that because you got money, but you know, at a certain place, you know, the money is just the money. And you can do things that are that are much greater. I never dreamt that I'd have a company that has as much AUM as it has or as the staff that it has. And I couldn't do it alone. There's no way, you know, without David and Ben, my partners, there's just no way, you know, it's like, they just know too much that I don't have, I'm not a finance guy, you know, they're finance guys. And it's really hard to build a finance company if you don't know shit about finance when you start. And that was me at the beginning. Now, I know a lot now, but that was the fun part is learning. You know, learning and all that. And, and, and a lot of people are learning the space. And, and from my experience, you know, from, from, you know, just engaging a little bit on Twitter, we talked about money, right? And it seems like that's a, that's a huge driving force, right? For the space right now, kind of like um, the quick buck. You jump on a project it rockets and then you sell it at whatever, you know, whenever you've made your 10 X or 15 X, 20 X, whatever uh, you sell. Now there've been people also that have been buying at the peak of the, of the mania only to be holding it when it, you know, drops down by, I don't know, a thousand percent. What do you see about that in the space? That's something that I find kind of alarming. I don't know how involved you are or how much you see that in the space where people are so fixated with the money that it's a lot of people are put off by it. Well, look, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Burning Man. I'm not really a burner. I've been a couple of times. It's on my bucket list. It's kind of choose your adventure, right? I mean, you can have a completely sober experience or you can have a completely intoxicated experience. And I kind of look at this world in the same way. If you want to be an authentic collector, buy low and hold. Well, you have the ability to do that. If you want to be someone that stakes your NFTs and gaming, create returns, you can do that. If you want to be someone that does high frequency trading of these things or arbitrage, you can do that. But I think there are people that may just want to play the games, for instance, or just get the NFTs as identity. And I just think, you know, the general kind of underlying rule with this or anything else is don't risk what you don't have. Don't leverage, 
you know, if you can't afford to lose it. And I mean, those are just basic ideas. And I think that's where we see people get in trouble, but that's no different than kind of in real life when people gamble. So, I mean, there's lots of opportunities in this world and, you know, you get to select, uh, you know, which path you go down. I mean, you can be conservative as well. There's a lot of stuff that has very conservative returns. 100% agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think that you just have to be authentic with what it is that you're collecting, right? If like, if you really enjoy something and you have the means to buy it, I mean, that should be the first and foremost kind of decision that you're making. Like, hey, I love this. It speaks to me. And if it drops to zero, I don't care because I still love the heck out of this, right? Right. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about the fund, kind of some specifics about it. I kind of want to then pick your brain a little bit about, you know, the future of the NFT space. You have the the NFT fund. Who can invest in it? Um, is it somebody that has to be an accredited investor or, you know, let's say somebody's listening and they, they want to get in on it? We do KYC AML. We're regulated. So we're required to do that. You know, obviously you can invest globally. So, you know, different restrictions for different uh, geographies. But yeah, we're very serious about, you know, the KYC and AML and you have to be accredited. Um, there's a minimum, but the minimum has been met pretty easily. Could you say what it is or? Well, you know, that's the funny thing is I'm not sure if we're going to raise it or not, but I can tell you that in the first month, we, you know, raised about 13 million bucks for the fund and it's not really slowing down. So one of the things that we did is that we just kind of now are going to probably engage more people around it to, you know, talk about it and, and bring some more um, funds in. I think the unique perspective on it and the, and the fact that we have everyone from high net worth to protocols to, to guys who work at in, you know, private equity firms investing in this thing really says a lot. And I think what it says is they don't understand the space. They know it's an asset, you know, that you can create a good return on. But if you're not deep enough in it to understand, you know, that small brains increase IQ and your hope is to get to coconuts that have magic tokens in them, they literally will listen to you and say, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) And I think that's the point because we know what's coming next. We know what whitelists we're on when we see how the market's changing and it requires that kind of dedication. So going back to veg and you know, some of the other people that we have as advisors, it's constant dedication to be in the space all day long because that's what it takes. I mean, look, my nephew, again, who's 14, wanted to get on a whitelist. They made him wait seven hours and draw pictures of penises. And it's just like, what? It's just like, but he did it. And he got on this whitelist. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, and I, look, that's not an NFT the fund would ever buy or collect. But I guess the the kind of really ridiculous point i'm trying to illustrate is you have to have a lot of dedication to know what's coming next and how to connect to it absolutely and most people i would say don't have that right but if somebody has ten thousand dollars right that they want to put their money into and they understand that the nfts are an asset class right but they're not in the space and some of it is just there's so many things right i mean you could literally spend a whole week and not go to sleep and you're still not caught up with what's going on in the space yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering, like with, with NFT funds, should it be something that that there's a barrier to enter, or you know, what what would you recommend? I guess like if someone really wanted to put in a, a good size amount of money, a regular person as an investment. Yeah, I mean, if they have enough money to come in and enter, and you know, they do KYC AML, I mean, they're going to qualify as you know 
accredited. And we have had kind of large amounts come in. I mean, that's how we got to where we got to kind of so fast. But, uh, you know, there's always something happening and it, and it happens per chain. Um, I was amazed to find out how robust the Cardano ecosystem is, something I hadn't looked at. You know, Solana, you know, um, Michael George just launched um, the Catalina Whale Mixer on Solana, and those were really interesting. And, and yeah, you do get busy. You know, the I had the opportunity to do the whitelist and buy those for one soul, and I think they're at 14 soul like two days later. And it's because they're interesting, and he's a good person that knows how to engage a community from the background that he came from. And, and he has a good group of people around him and a nice development plan. And I missed it. I personally missed it. And I couldn't have done it anyway if the fund was going to do it because everything goes to the fund first now. But the fund bought some. And you know we bought them and, and did well with those and, and believe in those, at least for the minute. <laughs> but I think we're pretty careful about what we deploy into. So if it's going to be significant, we kind of really understand what the long-term plan is because we have kind of access to do so. Yeah, with some of the assets, and I kind of want to get your strategy on the fund, are you looking, some assets you're looking to just buy and hold long-term? Uh, mostly. I mean, look, a collectible by definition is a collectible to collect. So, you know, we very rarely will do trading other than to maybe cover the cost basis. And if I'm buying it, that means I'm buying it because I believe in it and I'm not getting out of that position. So if you get into the fund, you'll be holding their capital for, I don't know, five years, five years. Okay. But we're also probably going to tokenize it to create some liquidity for them, which we can do after a year, but the hold is five years and then they can redeem. So the tokenization would make it available to other investors? Well, what would happen is because again, we're regulated, you know, the tokens would end up on security exchanges and it would tokenize the fund. So, I mean, we haven't done it, but we're able to do it. So I'm still kind of digesting whether we want to do that or not. Wow, that's big news. That's also just another variation. And I think one of the things about, I mean, we've done tokenization, although I don't think we've tokened it yet. We're just in the middle of it. We did a whiskey barrel fund um, where the return profile is pretty incredible. And we're about to tokenize that. But again, all, all through kind of regulated means. So we have a lot of firsts, you know, this is a, a regulated NFT fund, like there's other NFT funds out there. I'm sure there's other ones that came before us. What I'm not so sure about is if there's other ones that really kind of adhered to the regulatory process the way we did. And that's another big differentiator that gives people and kind of crypto corporates the ability to invest in it because of that protection. So, yeah. A lot of news, a lot of, you know, that tokenization would be would be a big deal. I don't even know if there's, you know, what that reminds me of is tokenizing is kind of like having a DAO, right? And the DAO having its own token. Yeah. And then almost kind of representing a piece of whatever the DAO has, except a DAO structured differently, obviously. Well, it's funny you should say that because the DAO is governed by the community and this is governed by me and partners. And the interesting thing is, is I really love the DAOs. I love something that's governed by community. I love tokens representing a voice. I love that they took it from a beneficial corporation model. And I think I've adopted the ethos of that into what we do. Um, if you take a look at the way we do things, but I guess if you really take a look at my history, when I did the rave things in those warehouses, a concert promoter snapped me up because I was doing things differently. 
and it was a different thing emerging. And we figured out how to blend those two cultures. Same thing with record companies. We blend the cultures. Same thing with a lot of the things I've done, you know, technology and music in my history. I always love the science experiment of if we put these people together, what's going to happen? Is it going to create an interesting result? Not unlike Moneyball, except I'm not nearly as smart as that guy was. But that's really the way we do things. And I, I like how the DAOs operate. And, and I thought if I could do some of that in a regulated fashion, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, DAOs are definitely shaping the way things are done right now. You reference, again, you know, your, your time in the music industry. And I guess I'll preface this question with this is, it doesn't matter if, if you are a raver or a crypto punk you know, a cyberpunk, everybody wants to have some money, right? Everybody wants to make money. How do you consolidate though, like this, that spirit, that energy of, you know, I'm not going to go my, my parents way or my grandfather's way of, of making a living. How do you consolidate that with kind of what's happening where you have these corporate behemoths, right? These, these multinational corporations beginning to, Hey, there's a lot of money to be made here. And is there the chance that that energy gets destroyed or polluted a little bit by that? No, I think it's funny. This is the first time I've ever seen corporate adoption so fast. And we have to remember what's actually happening here. You know, everyone always asks, is it a bubble? Is it not a bubble? And it's like, well, not really, because the more money that goes into the DAOs, the more innovation that happens and you're creating underlying technologies. And that's the funny part for me, because at the end of the day, the corporate guys, it's so ridiculous. I saw something the other day where Pepsi was talking about their mic drop to meta talking to some beer.com thing. And they're, you know, doing it in all the acronyms that are so popular with NFTs right now. And I just thought, what a load of shit. I mean, I know those are younger people who are working at those companies, but it's just, it doesn't matter, you know, because the people that are authentic are going to have their authentic successes. There is that divide right now. And the corporates are, there's room for them. And in some instances, they're going to have their successes. And I think the best version I've seen with that is artifacts being acquired by Nike and having an artifacts crypto punk and virtual punk NFT early on. Didn't understand why I was being offered so much money for those. Well, turns out because I had those, I got six clone X's. And I thought the thing with Mirakami being kind of a special bonus, if you could get it, was really brilliant. And then Nike coming in to do that or G money doing an Adidas deal. I think those are the best versions of corporates getting involved in the space because they're doing it in a way that's authentic. Now, some of the other stuff that you see that's a pure corporate, that's not that interesting, but I think a lot of the sports stuff that's going to be more centralized is just going to be better technology for trading sports cards. So, I mean, look, it, different strokes. Every one of those opportunities and, you know, launches is going to be different. The sports card? You're saying that that's going to be something that's going to be... I think that's just going to be a centralized version, but with better technology. Let me tell you what I mean. So when I used to collect crappy hockey cards, which were probably the worst card to collect, I'd have to go through those booklets and just look for hours at pricing. You know, now we have everything that's digital, you know, the way we display it, the way we can find the information on it, the provenance, the value. And again, when we go back to liquidity in the marketplace, having DEXs that we can trade those cards in immediately or OpenSea offers, you can trade immediately. That's a big difference. That's the, the thing that powers all of this. So 
I think some corporates are going to try to tap into that, but they won't be successful. You know, again, if I put it akin to the music business, authentic alternative music at the time really created traction and people loved it. It's the reason, you know, bands like Radiohead or I don't know, Sonic Youth or the Flaming Lips at the time, you know, were these bands that, that just gained such traction. And, you know, you got to hear coined terms like corporate rock sucks. And I just look at it the same way. I mean, there's going to be corporates that try to do it and replicate it, and it's going to suck. And then there's going to be these authentic ones that emerge. And look, I mean, it kind of hurts my heart in a way with the Bored Apes to see some of the stuff they're doing because it immediately made me want to just get rid of them. What are you referencing there? Well, you know, look, the universal band thing. It's funny because now I recoil to a lot of the music stuff. <laughs> and, it, you know, I didn't want to see the apes do a band with universal. There was just a bunch of shit like that in a weird way. And I think G money has his finger on the pulse. And I think looking at where the Adidas thing landed with the apes actually worked. So that's interesting. But, you know, I'm just that kind of music snob. It's like when you discover this great band and you're part of that club, you don't want it to really like go too fast, too far and dilute what it actually is. I hear it's like when you discover a band and not too many people know about them and then they get discovered and it's just like, ah, I got to find another band. Well, exactly. And, you know, I think with the apes, it's easy to do that. Now, the part that's really cool about apes or anything else is, is the way the IP transfers and what you can do with it and the fact that it's an individual thing. And, you know, look, Guy Osiri, I've known a long time. I like Guy. It's going to be interesting to see what he does with it because he comes, you know, with a different hat. He comes with that deep music background, you know, working with these large artists, um, brands and entities. And, you know, he's been successful at that. And, and it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how he adopts that. Look, his partner, you know, in, in some of the ventures, Ashton Kutcher, you know, they did the Stoner Cats. They had that cool ad with Vitalik and, yeah. you know, I mean, Stoner Cats haven't done much, but my guess is if I had to bet on them, the only reason I haven't sold them and I got some good ones when that happened is, you know, you just don't count those guys out. It's like all of a sudden there's going to be some fucking television show that blows the Stoner Cats up and you didn't see it coming. You know, and it's just like right now they're shit, you know, in terms of an investment, but you just can't count them out ever. So I know right now what's kind of, you know, because of Nike's art, uh, acquisition of Artifact and, and Adidas with the Bored Apes, it seems like fashion right now is having its moment. And, and there's speculation that there might be some other fashion brands looking to acquire other collections. Yeah. You talked about the Bored Apes and I, this is what I want to get your kind of big picture view here intellectual property rights right so with the board apes in my opinion right they're probably a little bit better set up because when you buy that ape you know that it's really yours right you can you can brand it you can you can make a, a company out of it you could use it to to market other brands you can't do that or at least as far as we know right you can't do that with cryptopunks lava labs has not been very clear but you know what's really fascinating about that like if you think about that story larva labs launches the cryptopunks and Artifacts does a crypto punk shoe. I have no idea what kind of rights they got to do that or if they just fucking did it because the punk bodies came out. And the only people that Larva went after were the funks. They were exactly comparable, right? Which makes funks actually cooler in some ways. 
But the funny kind of thing about the rights part, and, and, you know, it just hit me as I was sitting here. You know, I have a lot of these things, and, and it would be really fun to take my ape that I have the rights to and do something completely different in terms of licensing that is more traditional, whether it's licensing it for a product offering, you know, whatever that is, and seeing how I can earn money from this investment that I have, because that's really a new model in a funny way. And that's what they're going to do. If you look at the thing Two Chains did, he did this ape thing, and it had a lot of different kind of NFTs connected to it. And he's, he's launching these episodes that are like mini Netflix shows, but not on Netflix, but they're really, really good. And I think that's what you're talking about. How's all this going to change? How are rights going to change? Rights are complicated now. This makes it a lot easier. Definitely. And correct me if I'm wrong, though, it seems like certain projects give their owners way more latitude, right? Way more freedom to use their products as they see fit, whether, you know, to, to market stuff or to profit from it. But and I know you mentioned how Artifact came out with the punk bodies. No, but they didn't come out with the punk bodies. They came out with the punk shoes, which was a physical shoe. Punk bodies was something else that came out right around that time which was really this kind of pure, beautiful use case. Someone comes out with a crypto punk and then another company, unrelated, launches bodies that match your punk. That's pretty cool. But as far as I know, right, like the crypto punks, they haven't come on, been given that green light that say the board apes have, right? They've been unclear with what intellectual property rights. Yeah, I think they, they blurred some lines. I mean, I think they're, they've been very clear that they own their IP from what I understand, um, which is different. Look, I mean, the thing that's significant about the punks is the fact that it's generative art that hit the Ethereum blockchain first. Right. And it's not the first piece of generative art. It's definitely not the first NFT, but it is the first one on the Ethereum blockchain. And I think that's what their significance will always be. So in terms of the IP, whether they own it, whether they don't own it, it was early days. And I think those guys think a lot more like a company if you look at what they've launched so, you know, we'll see, you know, with the apes, they were the first one to really have this really kind of in intricate roadmap into the metaverse, you know, and adhering to a lot of the principles that the community is connected to. It's such a good community. They're always inspiring the community to do things. And I think that's where the crypto punks really fall, you know, because they do things like launch me bits and then you kind of don't hear from them again for a minute or autoglyphs. He's this 53-year-old guy that knows all of this crap. This is just really frightening. No, uh, and, and, and I, I think what you just said is kind of where, you know, what I'm thinking. I just wanted to get your, your opinion on it, like where it seems like, yeah, like you're right. I mean, there's no doubt about the significance of CryptoPunks, right? But then yeah. you can't just be a CryptoPunk. What are the owners going to get out of it? You, know? you can just be uh, Andy Warhol, you know, limited edition lithograph. Or painting. You, you can be that, sure. Um, but is it going to continue to evolve and grow? Might hold value. And it's okay. That's what it is. So, you know, there's other things that are interesting, like Sherberts, that if you hold a Sherbert, which sold out quickly, you need it to go play poker, which is launching in January. I thought that was pretty interesting. I saw this thing called floaties that no one seems to love. And I thought the artwork was really cool. And it was, again, about IP rights and old studio rights that are public domain. And I really liked them, but I mean, I don't think anyone knows about them. 
so there is stuff out there that I, I definitely like that I would never buy for the fun, but personally, just because I like what it is, I would buy it. You look at the personal NFT collection, it's vastly different you know, than what the fund is, and the fund just launched. So with that being said, right, how do you separate the two, right? If it's a drop, the fund goes first. If it's a secondary, it doesn't matter. Okay. Just last thing, I mean, I saw, it's really cool. You have a space where you, you have all your artwork that the fund owns. You know, it's on on cyber. Yeah, the on cyber gallery is cool. Yeah, it, it's real cool. And I, I love how you have like the cyber Kongs, like almost like stacked in a corner there. And there's just like a little army of cyber Kongs, you know? I love the cyber Kong VXs. I don't care what anyone says. Those things are awesome. Yeah, they're, they're real cool. And, you know, you can see what they're going to do with them. And, you know, they're, to me, clone X before clone X. So thank you so much. I mean, as I'm listening to you, you know, you're basically taking off all the things I was going to ask you about the fun and about your your thoughts in the space. If people want to just, you know, follow you or or learn more about the fun, what can they do? Like, I swear to God, you know, I should have started Twitter 20 years ago. It just never occurred to me that, that I should, you know, but but definitely, you know, that that that's probably a good place. Twitter? Yeah, because I, I mean, I kind of just talk to anyone. Yeah, you know, and I, I want to get more into like supporting. I haven't had a lot of time lately, but I want to get more into supporting local art and local artists um, and just start supporting them. It's super important and I've done some of it, not enough. So, yeah. And I want to say to what you just said about talking, I mean, 90% of the time I send out a, a, a message, even, even if it's like, you know, sorry, can't, don't have time, or maybe can we reconnect in a month? Uh, you, you know, you respond and you were so open to share your story and, and to just come on the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you enough, like how, you know, I appreciate that, you know, and, and, and my company appreciates that to have someone like, you know, your voice out and we can kind of have that on our, on our, on our podcast episodes. No, I appreciate you. I mean, the thing about it is, is I think you're either going to be part of this community or not. And I don't think selection fits. It's like, if someone's in the community doing something, you should talk to them and you should be supportive of it. That's, that's the whole deal to this. And I think people who value their time in such a way to say, look, I was a young guy and I'll close on this that wanted to get into the music business bad. And all I did was make phone calls and most people didn't take the call. And the ones that did, I remembered because that's what the whole thing was. If, someone was ahead of me, they could help support me, you know, as a young guy and get me to a place where I wanted to do kind of what I was doing. And I'm not suggesting you're that person. I'm just suggesting that being open to talk to people, you know, have good, who have good intentions is not a bad thing. So I don't mind doing it. I want to do it. I think the biggest takeaway I got from Les was about the importance of community and supporting each other. I hope you really felt his honesty and the way he managed to be so introspective at a point in time when he's having so much success. I don't know about you, but the conversation really inspired me to continue building. If you enjoyed the podcast or other episodes, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, but you can really help us by following or subscribing. That's all for now. Until next time on the Alts Podcast.